Well, good morning. So I'm Tony Hunt. I'm pastor here at LEFC. We welcome you. And if you were not with us last week here in this room, that's because none of us were here in this room. I mean, a year ago, we were all like on a hot dog roller being baked by the sun in our parking lot. This year, I felt like we were on the doorstep of heaven with the most beautiful weather and being able to worship together in one place out in God's creation. It was an excellent time. And so many people brought friends and, and, uh, and relatives to join us in that day. And I've heard many good stories, not to mention the 21 stories we got to hear through baptism uh, last week. And uh, God be praised for it all. Amen? Yes. We began a series last week in that, in that park looking at the Ten Commandments, and we'll get there in two weeks, actually speaking through uh, the various commandments, the ten, the ten of them that we know. And, uh, and so, but before we get there, we're trying to understand and grasp the context of the law of God. And so I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers would be glad to provide them for you. Uh, but Romans chapter 7 is where we'll be today. Last Sunday in the park, I was speaking out of Romans 1 and Romans 2. Basically, where we were at last week is we looked at how in Scripture it says that the law is what reveals the character of God, the holiness of God, and it also reveals the character of man, or should I say the unholiness of man, that we have a carnal nature, and the law exposes that. It's, it's part of God's revelation as to who he is and who we are. And we looked at Scripture last week that that is so ingrained, not only in who God is and who we are, but he's ingrained that law in our hearts, whether we've read the law or we've never seen the law ever. In other words, in Romans 1, it says that God has made it so evident in his creation to his eternal power and his divine nature that no man is, is with excuse. None of us can have excuse as to the nature of God and therefore held into account of his nature. So that when our final breath happens here on this earth, when we go before God, he is expecting that we come before him and that we would enter into eternity with him, having been seen as perfect and holy. Well, with that being the case, none of us would be allowed in. We would all fall short. And then for those that might try to say, well, I've never seen your law. I never read your law. Romans 2, clearly in verses 14 and 15, says that even if you've never read the written law, the law of God is written upon our hearts because we can see the creation reveals his divine nature. So therefore, we are not with excuse. There is a holy God, and we are an unholy people. But yet we're created in the image of God and created to have relationship with God. So that creates a problem. And the problem is this. That there is an internal battle in each of us that rages between our sinful nature and the law of God that is written upon our hearts. There is the dilemma. Whether you've seen the written law or not, each of us has an internal struggle 
with the nature that we have that is sinful and not holy, that that is in direct opposition to God, and that battle is a constant rage. Romans chapter 7 and verses 14 to 25 Paul speaks to this internal battle. The apostle Paul understood it. He himself was a follower of Jesus Christ and acknowledged that that sinful nature that was still there within him was constantly fighting against the work of God in him. So let's begin by reading verses 14 to 25. It says this, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do. And if I do not do what I do not want to, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, no, it is no longer I myself who is doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do, not, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of, that, of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Verse 19 again. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just read a doo-doo passage. If you notice, if you take your eye off of one moment, you get the do's in the wrong spot, and then that can become heretical real quick. And so I'm having to read through, but did you not resonate with the pattern of what he was saying? That there is this battle going on inside of me. There are things I want to do that are good, but those things that I know that are good that I want to do, I find that I don't do it. And the things that I despise the idea of doing are the very things I find myself attracted to and doing. Can you relate? Can you not relate that there's a tension going on, that there are things that you know are not good, that God would not like, that God would actually be embarrassed to, to, uh, to admit that you are doing in front of him? Can you not see that this is a common pattern for all of us. Perhaps some of you can even say the very sin that you feel when you read this. 
There is a particular sin that you constantly are struggling with that, that is always there before you. You know it's not good, and you know it doesn't please God, and you know there are repercussions from it, even between you and other people, and, it, and you certainly don't feel good about it, but you keep doing it. It's a vicious cycle. For many of us, that sin might be lust, pornography, or maybe it's simply covetousness, that always wanting of more, never being satisfied, gluttony. Food is an is a idol in America. Most of us are not pleased with our weight, but yet we keep eating more. Bragging, pride that just seems to always be growing up within us that our accomplishments need to be known by others or, or you need to prove that you know more than somebody else. You have an inflated, maybe the sin is, you have an inflated value of pleasure-seeking. Maybe it's a temper. And then you promise somebody, I, I won't do that again, because you see how much your anger outburst harms someone. For many of you, complaining is a sin that is prevalent. Constantly referring to that which is not good. Taking your bitter spirit and paying it forward to somebody else that might have come into contact with you without a spirit of complaint. Procrastination. Many of us struggle with laziness. And we kind of just say, yeah, I tend to procrastinate. Kind of belittling it. Meanwhile, because of your procrastination, others are having to respond in kind and, and fill in the gaps by your tardiness. These are sins that we find ourselves in rep regular repetition that we have to struggle with. We say we need to get better at it. We don't like it, but we continue to do it. So what is the cause? Why is this so? Why is it that even with God being in Paul's life, he can say, things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Why is it that that continues to happen? What's the cause? Well, the cause is this. The law creates guilt and disgust for sin. But you and I have a sinful flesh that is aroused by that very law. Think about this. When you tell a child, don't touch this, what do they want to do? Touch it. When you tell them, don't go there, where do they want to go? There. When you tell an adult, no, you're not allowed to do that, what does, what's starting to go on inside of them? Who are you to tell me that? And then secondary to that, I kind of want to do it now. Last week, in the park, I shared some of the ridiculous laws that, that actually have shown up in various states. And one of them that made some people laugh and I've had further discussions about is about the rule of not taking a selfie with a hibernating bear. That's a law in Alaska, which means that people were clearly going into dens that had hibernating bears in it and taking selfies with them. The fact that there's a law about it says that that hasn't always gone well. Now, by making it a law, do you think it's going to diminish 
that opportunity? Or will it likely increase and entice people to want to actually do it? My guess now is that it's become an even bigger dare. Because it was one thing to dare someone to go into a, a den with a hibernating bear, get a selfie of yourself with that bear, and get out alive. Now it's about not only doing that, but getting away with it where the law doesn't come against you. It's probably only made some even hearsay. That would be so cool. I'd like to try it. Let me tell you, you never poke a bear. Never poke a bear. Especially when it's asleep, you may not like it. But here's the point. Just the mere evidence of a law that says no. Our sinful flesh says, I want to. I want to. So what does this mean then about the law? So let's go into verses 7 to 13. If the law is part of the cause in this struggle between that and sinful flesh, how do we put that in understanding? So let's look at verse 7 to 13. So we're working our way backwards now in chapter 7. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what was coveting uh, if, if it wasn't really for what the law had not said. You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to give me life actually brought death. For sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy. It is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So did that which then is good become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what was good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So, the law and its mere existence saying, when we say don't do something, the desire to do it, that's the, the rage between sinful flesh and law. What this communicates from verses 7 to 13 is that while the law is what helps us understand that there is something that falls short of God's glory, that is sinful, that, that causes him uh, disgust, the law in and of itself is not the solution. The law is not the solution. It is merely the starting point of discovering you need help. So if the law is not the solution, but the starting point, what is it starting? If you didn't have the law, as Paul says, he wouldn't even know that coveting was not coveting unless there was a law written upon our hearts. That coveting is bad. Taking from that which is not ours Wanting that and always being driven to take from other people. That covetousness that was there. He said, if I didn't know that, 
then I would be constantly falling short of God and not knowing I'm falling short of God. But God made it evident in our hearts and on the written law. Don't go there. So the law is the starting point to realizing we need God's help. It provides the disgust, the remorse, and the need for admission that we are flawed and need of help. Without the law, we'd be content in our current state. But because the law is written upon our hearts, because the law is also written for us to read, then it exposes the sinful nature, which then is aroused by the fact there's a law. Because now it says, I want to do it. And I want to do it all the more. So if this is true, what's the solution? If this is true, what's the solution? Well, the solution is this. There must be a death. There must be a death to the flesh to truly find life. So how does this work? Let's go to the first six verses of chapter 7. So continuing to work backwards. Starting in chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as, she, as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law that binds her to him. So then she has... So then, if she has sexual relations with another while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from that law so that we can serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So the solution is this. The law dictates that because we are not holy like God, we earned death. We earned death. And so therefore, the only way then to find life is to somehow die to the law that binds us, that shows and exposes our guilt. And so he says in verses 1 to 3, it's like the same thing, that when uh, people get married and they take vows before others, that until there is a death of one of them, they're bound by that vow and that law to be betrothed to each other for all their years. But when death comes, they're released by that law. So too, Paul says that when there is a death that covers the law, a death to the law, then we're released from the guilt and condemnation of that law. So how does that happen? Verse 4 says it. It says that, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through what? The body of Christ. That you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So through Christ, we can literally die to the law. There's a provision there 
that God who supplied the law that shows our guilt is also the same God who supplies the means to match the penalty of that guilt through death of his son, Jesus. And then we can live out the fruit that pleases God when through that relationship with Jesus, we operate by the spirit, not the written code. Because in verse 6, it says that we've now been released by the law so that we can serve in a new way or live in a new way by the Spirit, not in the old way by the law. So the question becomes, are we getting rid of the law? No. The law was the only thing we had to go by before Christ. But all we found was that we can never achieve perfection. The law continues to say, you're falling short. You're not meeting the standard, but because Jesus came and died and provided a new means by which we can then live by the Spirit, the Spirit who is the embodiment of that law, who lives by the holiness that that law reveals, is now in us and gives us the ability to live a holy and righteous life that the law points to. So therefore, we need to die to that law to be liberated by the Spirit so we can live by a sp the Spirit who helps us live that what the law points to. So then the question becomes, well, how do we then experience the death of Christ and, and receive that Spirit by which we can then now live? Well, the solution is this, that the indwelling Spirit of Christ then will provide what the law was powerless to do, which was to give you power to live a life that pleases God. And this happens by a relationship with Jesus. So verse 1 of chapter 8. So if you can just now, we're going to go past chapter 7. Go to chapter 8, first four verses. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has done what? Set you free from the law of sin and death. Because the law only exposes that you are sinful and it leads to your death because you're going to sin. And therefore, the law demands a death. So therefore... When we are, because of Jesus, we get a spirit of life, it sets us free from that law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do. Because it was weakened by our sinful flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you realize what has just been said here? That with, with just the law, it tells us we need something on our behalf. And without that something, we are going to repeatedly fall short, repeatedly anger God, and fall out of favor with Him. Repeatedly. But through Jesus and his death, because he was born of a virgin, sinless, he came and he lived a sinless life. And then he took on death, which was meant only for those who had sinned. He took on that death, died, and then that death becomes a coverage, a payment for the sin you and I have felt. 
and experienced and done. Then as a result, then we now have the Spirit. And that Spirit then gives us the power and the ability to live the holy life that we wouldn't have been able to do without the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, when we taught through Ephesians this past year, and in Ephesians chapter 1, if you recall and you were here, it said in verses 13 and 14 that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, having believed in his work on the cross, his death as being sufficient coverage and payment for your sin, when you believed and you received that, it says you were then given the Holy Spirit at that moment. That Holy Spirit becoming the payment, the marker saying, you are God's child. That Holy Spirit's now with you. You've now surrendered to the death of Jesus Christ. That Spirit is working in you, and he convicts you when you sin. It's no longer the law. It's now the Spirit. But then what the law would simply do is convict you, but then there was nothing. It would just convict you. But the Spirit, when he convicts you, then gives you the motivation, gives you the power, gives you the opportunity to succeed and get beyond the sin. So that's why he says, that which was providing death for us, the law, we've been set free from because the law was satisfied in the death of Jesus. It's no longer satisfied in our death. Our death was simply final. When we would die at the end of this life, the law would say, you're guilty. You cannot spend eternity with God. But now, the law is satisfied in another's death, Jesus. And when we go before God, God sees us as holy, righteous, whiter than snow. Because his son's death was sufficient. The beauty is, is that it doesn't just end there. Now we have the Holy Spirit and we can live every day with the power of God in us to live according to that life. And John, the Apostle John in 1 John 1 acknowledges sin hasn't gone away. We still have a sinful nature. But the difference is when we're in a relationship with the Spirit that we can now go to Him, confess our sins, and He says He is faithful and just to forgive us and what? to cleanse us then from all that unrighteousness. So we have the, then the ability then that when sin still shows up, that we can cling to the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit to find victory. If you have been trying to deal with the sin that, that Paul talks about, the things you don't want to do, you find yourself doing. And the things you want to do that you know are of God, you end up not doing. If you're stuck in that cycle, the worst thing you could do is try, is to try on your own. You'll fail. If it was possible to do it on your own, he would have never needed to send Jesus. But he sent Jesus because you can't do it on your own. And he provides the spirit by which you can find victory over those sins. Some of you came into this room today without the Spirit of God in you. You've never given your life to Jesus. And the law of God is upon your heart. You might have even read the law before. But you know that when, that when you were to be honest with somebody, they, they'd, you'd say, I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes. I've hurt people. Something tells you that 
God's not that way. Because inside of you, it's also true that you would say, God hasn't done that. God's character is beyond that. So you go through life and you feel the guilt and shame of maybe some of your decisions. Or maybe just simply a dissatisfaction. Something's not quite right. Some, the reason why something's not quite right is because you're not in relationship with the creator God. And you need his son Jesus. And you need his spirit. For those of you who are believers, you've had the spirit of God with you for a long time. But somewhere along the way, you quit living by the Spirit and you started living out of the flesh, which has no power to find victory. God says we can find victory over sin through confession to Him. But He also says in James 5 that if we confess to one another our sins, we can find healing. The power of the Spirit, living in truth, not in some kind of falsehood, living in the light, not in darkness, starts giving us the strength to find victory over those sins. If you're caught in a grip of sin, go to God and then go to the church. Find people in the church that you can trust that will help you walk in the journey and begin to listen to the work of the Spirit inside of you. God didn't intend for you to find that you were losing the battle every day. He intended a, a life of victory. Would you join me in prayer? So God, for those who had no spirit coming in here, would you draw them to your heart now as only you can do? That they can discover the saving work of Jesus Christ. And for those of us that came in with the spirit of God, but maybe we've been denying his voice, we've been dismissing that voice, we've been living under our own flesh and our own vision. Would you use the Spirit in us now to convict us and arrest our thoughts and our eyes back towards you? And then help us to walk out that which you would want us to do, both in confession to you, but also to each other, so that we can find victory. In the end of the day, Lord, if left to us and the law, we fail. But if left to you, we discover life and life to the full and it glorifies you. So help us to seek you and the power that you provide through Jesus Christ and his spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a song called, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. Use this time to prepare your heart for communion. Communion is given to us to never forget that the work was accomplished in Jesus, not in us. He did the work. We get to rely upon that work. This is given to us so that we would never forget. So prepare our hearts now as we sing these words, and then we'll take together.
on the night that Jesus was betrayed, before his death that was going to accomplish what the law could not, he said to his disciples, he says, I want you to take of this bread and remember me. Remember what he's taught, how he's lived, how he's interacted, because it's through him we know the template of life. Let's now take of that bread in remembrance of him. Sometime later at the table, he said, he held up the cup of the vine, he said, this is the blood of a new covenant, my blood, which will be shed for you. So when we eat and drink of this cup, we recognize that it's by his death and his work that we find release from the law and power through the Spirit to live to the glory of God. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Let's take together. Jesus, we do not take lightly that you died a death that was horrific, cruel, and unjust. That was meant for us. But you stood in the way of our death and took it upon yourself so that we could have life. Jesus, we give you glory and honor, and it is in your name, your name that is to be above all names, that we surrender ourselves again anew to your lordship, and to your spirit that indwells us, that we can live a life of victory to your glory. This was only possible because of what you have done. So thank you. Let's stand and let's sing that chorus together as we conclude. To this I hold my hope is only Jesus, all the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall would like to pray with someone this morning in the encounter room, perhaps that sin that you realize has just got a grip on you, and you just want somebody to pray with you, have that opportunity to live out James 5, find healing by confessing what the sin is, and, and to find prayer over that. We'd be glad to pray with you in the encounter room. There, we have somebody in there that'd be glad to do so. If you would like to also give your life to Christ and discover the joy of the Spirit, again, please go to that room or even come forward. I'll be glad to talk with you. People of God, children of God, those who claim Christ as their Lord and Savior, don't 
live by your gut. Don't live by your flesh. Don't live by your own instincts. Always ask, Spirit, speak to me. Speak to my gut. Speak to my instincts. Come under his authority. Be immersed in the word of God so that you can know and define that which is the Spirit's voice and that which is not. Because therein is where you'll find victory in Jesus. Amen? You are dismissed. Have a glorious rest of your day.